was happening at that time and, and to summarize a whole bunch of things. And so when we looked previously at verses 7 to 12, we saw Jesus' preeminence, his authority over the Jewish leadership. We saw his prudence in wisely choosing to back away from the direct conflict at that point with the Jewish leaders. And he did all of this so that he could build up his disciples, so that he could spend time and be with them. We saw his popularity uh, with people coming from everywhere to see him. And we also saw his provision in the way that he healed those in need. Every single person that came to him, he healed. And moreover, we saw his power over the demonic realm. The demons knew that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, but Jesus refused to allow them to give that testimony. He didn't need it and he didn't want it. He did not call for their witness to him. Now, it's timely that Jesus' silencing of the demons then coincides with establishing a group of men who would, whom he would enable to serve as witnesses to him. The demons weren't going to be his witnesses. The apostles were going to be his witnesses. Now, the establishing of the apostles is so important for a number of significant reasons that we'll look at. Apostleship is also something that is severely misunderstood in the church at large today. Some claim that apostles are still around today. Some even claim to be apostles. Did you know that there is an organisation called the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders? And did you know that you can apply to be recognised as an apostle for the small price of 350 bucks per annum? That's US, so you know you have to pay a little bit more. But if you and your spouse are both apostles, you can get a discounted rate of 450 bucks per annum. Now that is not a bad deal to ensure that you win every theological argument that comes your way, right? What do you say? Well, this is what the Lord is saying, and you can't disagree with me because I am an apostle. See, it says so right on the bottom of this receipt. Apostleship is such an important topic to understand. And so we're going to spend today and uh, the next couple of weeks working through this text. You might think, what's there to speak about for several sermons? Well, just wait and see, because there is a lot in these verses. And I pray as we go through this that it will not only help you think through the concepts of apostleship with greater clarity, that it will prepare you uh, for uh, things that are claimed about God's word from people holding or claiming to hold the title of apostleship today, but moreover that it will be incredibly edifying to your soul as you see what is pointed to in these verses. So we're going to break this passage down into three aspects concerning the apostles of Christ. We're going to see their appointment, their assignment, and then we're going to look at their attributes. We're going to look at who these apostles are. But today, we're just going to focus solely on the first aspect, their appointment. You see, our major task for today is to understand the deep significance of Jesus appointing the 12 apostles. So their appointment, verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 state of Jesus. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. 
And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now, in Luke's account of this event, he tells us in Luke 6, verse 19, that Jesus went to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And so then when day breaks, he's ready to appoint his apostles after a long communion with the Father. Now, Mark doesn't mention Jesus' prayer time here in chapter 3, but we've already seen this practice of Jesus earlier in chapter 1. You remember that after Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, the, the whole town caught wind of it. And then by evening, the crowds had arrived and then Jesus healed every single person who was brought to him, whether they were suffering from physical infirmities or whether they had spiritual oppression by demons. didn't matter. And then this went all into the night. But then we read in Mark 1, verse 35... That rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus demonstrates to us very clearly where his priorities lie. He willingly gives up sleep in order to spend time, and not just quality time, but a quantity of time in prayer. Now, it wasn't that Jesus was superhuman and that he didn't need sleep. Yes, he was truly God. And yet, at the same time, he was also truly man. In the Gospels, we see different instances of Jesus getting tired or getting hungry. While he was truly God, his deity did not bleed into his humanity. He was not impervious to physical needs. He needed sleep. He needed food. But what we see in the Gospels is an example of putting those needs on hold in order to spend time with God. And it cost him physically to do that. To give up food, many got hungry. To give up sleep, many got tired. But it was a cost he was willing to pay because his desire for communion with God overrode his other desires for food or sleep. Of course, he in no way continued in a state of hunger or sleep deprivation. He dealt with those matters at an appropriate time. This begs the question, how willing are we to give up the staples of life in order to focus our attention on God? Not only in times of acute need, but also in the day-to-day of life. But certainly, if the God-man found it necessary to seek the Father's guidance before a big decision, how much more so each one of us? So Jesus went up the mountain. He was there all night, and then the next morning he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, if we remember the context in Mark 3 and then verse 7, Jesus had withdrawn with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd had followed him. People had come from all over Israel, from north, south, east and west. The crowd was so big that Jesus had to get his disciples to have a boat ready for him in case he needed to push out into the water to avoid being crushed. It's no wonder then that Jesus, on the cusp of appointing the apostles, he heads up the mountain for a time of quiet prayer. Well, now comes the morning, and out of the crowds, there are those designated as disciples. There are people who have 
committed themselves to following Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a follower. But out of these disciples, 12 are appointed as apostles. Luke makes that especially clear in Luke 6 verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So you've got the crowd, you've got the disciples, you've got 12 who become apostles. Now, I want you to see the language that is used here to describe this account. Mark says that Jesus called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. Who is at work in this passage? It's Jesus. He's the one doing the calling. He's the one doing the pointing. This, friends, is the language of election. One of the biggest problems that people face in denying God's sovereignty and choosing a people for himself is that you can't get away from it. It's everywhere in the Bible. If you're going to preach expository sermons working verse by verse through the scriptures, then it's impossible to avoid talking about election because it's everywhere. And here it is again. Jesus called those whom he desired and he appointed 12. Christ's choosing of the apostles is emphasised elsewhere too. Think about John's gospel account. In chapter 15, in verse 16, John records these words of Jesus to the apostles. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, someone might contend that this is merely Jesus' choice of his apostles, but that doesn't have any bearing on an individual being chosen by God under salvation. But here we simply say that Jesus' sovereign choice of his apostles is indicative of the way God operates in general. God is sovereign. And not just over some things, but over all things. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever God wants, that's what happens. God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. Now, let me ask you, what is the significance of Jesus choosing 12 disciples and designating them apostles? What does the number 12 bring to mind? It's the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Now, how did Israel become the people of God? Were they the most intelligent and wise and learned people of all the nations and discovered God for themselves, they went to God and said, hey, we're very smart and we figured out the way, we want to be your people, can you be our God? Is that what Israel was set apart? Is that why Israel came to be God's people? Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 7. Now, in verses 7 to 8, 
Moses clarifies things. He makes it very simple for the Israelites as to wondering how they became God's people. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it wasn't Israel had something going for them. It wasn't that Israel brought themselves to God. It wasn't because of Israel's greatness. It was simply because God decided to place his love on them. The initiative was God's alone. Now, we know that the nation of Israel stemmed from Jacob, right? Whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob was a son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. Now, what did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12? Well, turn with me backwards to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll see. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, God did that as well, by the way. Abram was a pagan. He wasn't looking for God, but one day God chose him. God saved him by enabling Abraham to trust in his promises that he would have descendants through whom the world would be blessed. And of course, in the genealogies of Jesus that we looked at over Christmas, Matthew and Luke's gospel, it's clear that Jesus, the son of Abraham, would be the one through whom blessing would come. Now, Abraham was the son of Adam, you remember Adam, the first man? Adam was, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and then every human after was born with a sinful nature, including Abraham. And so Abraham could not have responded to God without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same for every single person. We cannot turn to God without the working of God. This is the mercy of God, that he does act to save people. And this is fulfilled through the cross of Christ, where Christ came to die for the sins of his people. Now we'll see election come out again when we get to Mark chapter 4. But if you flick over to Mark chapter 4... And we read in verses 10 and 11, Mark 4, 10 and 11, and when he was alone, that's Jesus, when he was alone, those around him with the, sorry, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So only those to whom the Spirit enables will understand the things of God. And of course, 
The Spirit enables people through the preaching of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection that secured the redemption of a people for himself. And we preach the good news, not just from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but in our conversations when we speak to people about Jesus. We preach the good news of Jesus such that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a salvation brought about by the grace and mercy of God. You see, when a person comes to faith in Christ, they don't praise their own abilities. The elect of God have nothing to boast about in themselves. All glory goes to God alone. So Christ's sovereign choosing of the apostles is simply a demonstration of his overall sovereignty. Now, let's just stay here for a moment because I want you to truly recognise how Christ's choosing of his apostles demonstrates his sovereignty. Now again, what does the number 12 bring to mind? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now in the Old Testament, in the days of Moses, how were the 12 tribes laid out geographically? They were set out like a square with three tribes at the north, three tribes at the west, three tribes at the south, and three tribes at the east. And what was at the centre? The tabernacle. And what was in the tabernacle? The presence of the glory of God. Mark's purpose in writing this gospel was to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal, uncreated second person of the Trinity. Now, in Mark 1, verse 2 and 3, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, words that are applied to the work of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as a forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival. But the quote from Isaiah speaks of the way being prepared for the Lord. This was a statement originally concerning God and now applied to Christ Jesus. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is more than a man. He is the God-man. Within the first first few chapters, Mark has provided ample evidence to back up this claim about the deity of Jesus. His healings, his preaching, uh, his power over the demonic, the testimony of the demons, Jesus declaring sins forgiven, something only God could do. The end of chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, we read about those Sabbath controversies. What does Jesus declare of himself? Chapter 2, 28, he is Lord of the Sabbath. That is a direct claim to deity because God instituted the Sabbath and God alone has authority over the Sabbath. So now, When we come to the choosing of the the apostles, the gathering of 12 men around him, 12 men who symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, we have an incredible statement that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the tabernacle. In the choosing of the 12, we see vividly what the apostle John declared in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there means tabernacled. 
as God's glory dwelt in the centre of the camp of Israel, so God's glory dwelt in the centre of the twelve apostles. There should be no mistaking here that Jesus Christ is God. But there's more here too. The gathering of the twelve is also a symbol of the new exodus that Jesus was bringing. When God delivered Israel out of bondage to slavery in Egypt, he established the nation around his presence at the centre of the tabernacle. But it was clear right from the start that they could not abide by God's presence. The Israelites would not be able to follow God's commands, God's standard for holiness. They would sin and they would have to be exiled. In Deuteronomy, Moses uh, the whole the whole book is Moses preaching to uh, the Israelites on the cusp of entering the promised land. And uh, in chapter 31, God speaks to Moses. And he declared to them of Israel's imminent failure. They knew that obedience meant life in God's presence and disobedience would mean exile from God's presence. But God declares to Moses before they even enter, they're going to stuff up. Deuteronomy 31 verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So God's making clear to Moses that exile was inevitable. The people would sin and bring down God's judgment upon them. However, that did not extinguish God's promises to Israel that he would be merciful and that he would bring the people home. When we read the history of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. God brought Israel into the promised land. They sinned. He exiled them sending them away to Babylon, but after a time he brought them back. This was a new exodus. However, this physical return was lacking. Israel did not return to the glory days under David and Solomon. God's presence did not return to the temple because the people kept on sinning. And it demonstrated clearly that without God's intervention, people would never change. The cycle of exodus, sin, exile, exodus, etc. would simply continue. And so we see that the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed towards something far greater. So we've already seen in Mark chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a time when the Lord would arrive to rescue his people. But this rescue, this deliverance, this exodus, would be far more than a physical deliverance. The people of Israel were physically redeemed from slavery, but their hearts were corrupt. They kept on sinning. This is what the exodus of the Old Testament points towards, a spiritual deliverance. Now turn with me back to the Old Testament to the prophet Jeremiah. If you find Psalms, turn to the right. And Jeremiah chapter 9 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at three passages 
in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, the prophet highlights the spiritual problem the nation of Israel faced. Jeremiah 9, verses 25 to 26 says the following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So here's the spiritual problem. The people of Israel had a physical sign that they belonged to God, There's the circumcision of the flesh, but not all had experienced a circumcision of the heart. Now this phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament and it's equivalent to the New Testament terms of being born again or being regenerated. It speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit in giving life to dead and disobedient hearts that they might trust in God. Now some of the Israelites had experienced this, By God's gracious work, some were faithful, but many weren't. Here we see why the exile to Babylon came about and why the exodus from Babylon did not fully rectify the situation because there would still be those within Israel whose hearts were not devoted to God. Now turn with me to Jeremiah 16. Now, if you're hearing these things for the first time and getting blurred in the bigger picture, feel free to come and speak to me afterwards or at any point. Uh, This is important stuff here, but it's hard to get your head around the first time you hear it. So we've seen Jeremiah 9, and that pointed to the problem of the, the spiritual problem. We're in Jeremiah 16, and here God speaks to the people of Israel about the return from exile. But the language points to a far greater exodus than simply being brought back from Babylon. So in verse 14, we read, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, the exodus, this was the landmark event of the Old Testament. This is how the people of Israel referred to God. He was the one who saved them from slavery in Egypt. But there will be a time when that deliverance of God will be overshadowed by something far greater. It shall no longer be said that God is the God of the exodus from Egypt. But then continuing with verse 15. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So there will be a time when God will seek out all his people and bring them home. It will be an exodus so astounding that it will eclipse what took place before in Egypt. Now no doubt this refers to the return from Babylon, but it's certainly much bigger than that. Now look at verse 16 and just see if these words bring anything to mind. Behold, I am sending for many fishes, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. 
And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill, and out of the clefts of the rock. In Mark chapter 1, we read that when Jesus passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew casting a fishing net into the sea. Do you remember what he said to them? Follow me and I'll make you become what? Fishers of men. They immediately dropped their nets and followed him because the lights went on. By God's grace, they connected what Jesus said to the prophecy given through Jeremiah. Here is the guy. Here is the one who is going to bring in the people of God from all the countries. Here is the one who is going to bring in that great exodus that would eclipse what happened before. Here's the guy. Now before we leave Jeremiah, turn with me to chapter 31. The Bible presents a very clear picture of humanity's sinfulness. God had related to his people through covenants, promises that established the ground rules for relationship between God as the sovereign and, and his people. Now, these covenants outlined the commitments and obligations of each party. We know that God had always been faithful to his side of the equation and we also know that the people were always unfaithful to their part. The covenants progressed throughout the Old Testament. God first made a covenant with creation and with Adam as its head. This was reiterated with Noah after the flood. Next came the covenant with Abram, then with Israel at Sinai, and then with David. Each time humanity failed in their part because of sin. And the progression of the covenants helped show how deeply in need of God's grace sinners are. Without grace, we will never stand before God. And so we then start hearing in the Old Testament about a new covenant. A covenant in which God and God alone would be the one to ensure that the obligations were met within his people. And one of the clearest places this is stated is found in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. Let's read. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by my hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. But I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, as we've said, the problem Israel faced is that physical redemption was not enough. They needed spiritual redemption. Now, some within the old covenant had received spiritual redemption, but many hadn't. The nation of Israel under the old covenant was a mixed community. 
As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Those within the nation of Israel who had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whose hearts had been circumcised, they were caught up in the exile due to the sinful disobedience of their brethren. But the new covenant community would be a community in which all the members knew the Lord. They would all be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And moreover, they would have God's law written on their hearts, which I believe speaks not simply of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, something that sets the new covenant apart. The temple is where the tablets of God's law was kept, but believers now have the law written on their hearts and are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately as the church. Jesus Christ fulfills all the old covenant obligations and in this way, he is actually the true Israel. He accomplished what Israel could never do. And through his life, death and resurrection, he established the new covenant. And in the New Covenant, we see the fulfilment of the greatest exodus, a true redemption from slavery to sin, a spiritual redemption, reconciliation with God, so much so that God's Spirit resides in each believer. And with that comes the further promise of physical renewal in the new heavens and the new earth. The spiritual comes first and then the physical later. So when Jesus appoints the 12 apostles, he is setting himself as the centre of rebuilt Israel. See, prior to this moment in history, history, people considered themselves as belonging to God if they belonged to the nation of Israel. Yet as we've seen even then, not all Israel was Israel. But now, with the coming of Jesus, with the Uh, His appointing of the apostles, he's making it clear that the covenant community would be known by faith and not by race. And here's why as a church, on the one hand, we teach that baptism is for believers. Because the new covenant community consists of all those who know the Lord. And baptism is a visual proclamation of the faith that God has graciously brought about in a person's life. Unlike the old covenant community, the church is not a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. Membership in a church is based on profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is also why, as a church, on the other hand, we don't teach that there is this dramatic, continued distinction between Israel and the church. This is what's referred to collectively as dispensationalism. Now, it's not that the church has simply replaced Israel as the people of God. No, Jesus Christ is the true Israel. He fulfills all the obligations that the nation of Israel failed to do. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true Son of God. But now... All those who trust in Christ are then partakers of the blessings that Christ has brought about. 
The people of God, the true Israel, are now those who find themselves united to Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. The twelve apostles were Jews, but it was no longer their ethnicity which saw them included in the people of God. It was their connection to Jesus. The church is the new restored Israel only so much as it is found in Jesus Christ. So I hope you can now see there is a tremendous amount of significance in the action of Jesus to choose and appoint his 12 apostles. This is not just some number that he picked out of his head. It's not that he liked symmetry. There is far more going on in this action than we might see at first glance. We're not fully done yet. Our time's almost up. Let me just spend a few minutes on apostleship itself. This is just in wrapping up, really. We'll deal with this in far more detail next time, but let me say a few things that will help connect together all that we've talked about already. What does the word apostle mean? Usually, people think of it simply as meaning one who is sent or a messenger. But there is more to it than that. I came across an outstanding treatment of on apostleship in a book called Supreme Authority, and it's uh, by a man called Norval Geldenhuis. He was a Dutch guy, form pastor. It was written in 1953, but it's gold. It's a short study, very clear. Recommend it. And he says this, An apostle is one chosen and sent with a special commission as the fully authorised representative of the sender. Fully authorised. Now he quotes another guy. You don't need to remember these quotes, but just let some of these words dwell in your minds. The apostle is not only the messenger, but the delegate of the person who sends him. He is entrusted with a mission and has powers conferred on him. Again, it doesn't matter if you can't remember that definition. That's not important. What is important is to see that apostle means more than messenger. An apostle was someone who acted with the authority of the one who sent him. He wasn't just there to share a message. He was sent with the authority of the one who sent him. Now, in Hebrews 3... You don't need to flick there. Let me just read Hebrews 3 verses 1 and 2. We read this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The writer of Hebrews, he goes on to make the point that Jesus is greater than Moses, right? Moses was sent by God to deliver the people from physical bondage in Egypt. But Jesus was sent by God to deliver his people from spiritual bondage. He was sent by God to bring about a greater exodus. And he didn't come merely as a messenger. He came as an apostle, as a fully authorized representative of God. We read those glorious words in John 3, 7... uh, John 3:17 For God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. The father sent the son 
But the Son was not simply a messenger. He was God incarnate. He was the Word of God made flesh. He came with the authority of God. Now, in a similar manner, when Jesus appointed the 12 apostles, he made them more than messengers. He conferred upon them his own authority. Now, I don't know whether you've, you've thought about that before when you've considered the apostles. I don't know if you've thought much about their authority. We tend to disparage them as men who didn't quite get things, as men who were kind of thick-headed and prideful. And in the gospel accounts, we certainly do see moments of that. And that's why they're often referred to in the gospels as disciples, because they're still learning. They're sitting under Jesus at that point. In fact, that's part of the reason why Jesus appoints them. And we'll see later in this section that Jesus appoints the twelve so they might be with him. They are disciples in the gospel accounts. But after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we see their supreme authority in the book of Acts. They are truly Christ's representatives. And in the pages of the New Testament, which were written either directly by an apostle or with intimate connection to an apostle, we have the authoritative and sufficient word of God revealed to us. A better understanding of the authority of the apostles will ensure that our view of the apostles in the gospel does not translate to our view of the apostles either in Acts or in the writing of scripture as a whole. It's a sign of integrity that the apostles even included their moments of misunderstanding and failures in the gospel. We have an inerrant and infallible word through the authority of the apostles and ensured by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when we recognise the authority of the biblical apostles, we also recognise that it's quite an audacious claim for those who lay hold to the title of apostle for themselves today. But we'll deal more with that next time. In Christ's appointing of the twelve apostles, we see not only Christ's authority, but we see the authority conferred upon these twelve men. Next week we'll look more deeply at what it meant to be an apostle, but for now let's just simply rejoice in all that Christ's appointment of the apostles means. It means the promises of God are fulfilled. It means that we can become members of the new covenant community through faith by grace. And it means we have reassurance of all this because God's word has been written by Christ's representatives who carried his authority and were enabled by his power. And it means also that when we trust in Jesus' name for salvation of sin, we are calling upon the one who is God, the only true Saviour. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us in the sending of your Son, Jesus, the true Apostle the true Israel who fulfilled all the covenant obligations that we never could. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that is brought about by Christ's blood shed for us. We thank you that you draw us to yourself and you draw us into a people collectively. We just thank you so much for this. We thank you for what we have seen today about apostleship. We thank you for the clear testimony that is to Jesus as truly God. 
We also pray that you would help us in our understanding of apostles as we see their authority and as we submit to the word which was overseen by them. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing in Christ alone and as we do so, we have time to reflect upon God's work of salvation and as we head into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper.